Good morning and a Freilich and Hanukkah to all. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. Thank you so much for joining us. So glad that you are here. I want to thank our sponsors as always. Dear friends, Becky and Avi Katz and family in loving memory of David Grossman. Becky's father, Lili Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manush. And a big mazel tov to the Katzes on their nephew's bar mitzvah in Israel in Beit Shemesh. Uh, Parsha class is also sponsored by Helene and David Levitsky. Mazel tov to Abby uh, and the Rosenblatt family on her bat mitzvah this past uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Thank you so much for your generosity and for your sh- uh, sponsorship. Okay, one quick housekeeping note. Next week, please God, next week, please God, the Parsha show will only be available on YouTube and Facebook, not on Zoom. So if you normally watch on Zoom just for next week, please note that for you'll need to join in on YouTube or on Facebook in order to be able to watch. Okay, this week we have the privilege of learning, of studying together Parshas Miketz, a Parsha very near and dear to my heart. It happens to be my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. And Parshas Miketz begins, Parshas Miketz begins in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, page 222. And it happened at the end of two years, and Paro began to dream. A lot of interesting questions about this puzzle. The use of the word vayihi, vayihi is often connotes a negativity. So what is the negative about this dream? Number one. Number two, cholem is in what tense? Cholem is in the present tense. Why is cholem in the present tense? It was a past dream. It was chalam. Paro had a dream. So let's begin with the word vayihi. Let's start off with the story of the word vayihi. Connect our Parsha and Hanukkah, and begin our first Parsha perspective for today, a lesson which I think is very, very instructive and inspires and inspires me. In the Marganisa de Rabbi Meir, the story of Rabbi Meir Permishlan, he lived 1783 to 1850, he tells the following story, Rabbi Meir the great chassid, uh, the great disciple of the Holy Baal Shem Tov, had a homiletical interpretation of the opening pasuk of our parsha of Vayihi Yamim, and he said the following, based on an experience that his father once had. He records this experience of his father, that his father once appeared. His father said that his neshama was elevated, was brought up to the world of truth. And two individuals ascended on high, one after the other. His father once had a vision, and he saw two people being brought into heaven. One was quite young, and the other appeared to be ripe in age, aged like fine wine. The other appeared to be very old. And strangely in Shamayim, the older one, Sorry, the younger one, rather, was called a zakin. The younger one was called an old man. Ulisha zakin, the older man, Koran Katan Vyelad. The older man was called a youngster, a child. Vyeshal, and his father wondered. This is the world of truth. It's Po Emes This is the world of truth. So why are they joking around? Why would you call the older one a youngster and the younger one old man? After all, this is the world of, of truth. So listen to what his father said. His father said in his vision, he was answered. The younger one lived life to its fullest. The younger one embraced and took advantage of each and every day. Every day he lived as if it was a complete year. Every day was like a whole year. That's how richly he lived it. That's how fully he engaged it. That's how invested he was in it. But the old man, Lopal Klum, in all 80 years, 
never accomplished much, never really made the most of any given day. And therefore, this older man might have reached 80 years old chronologically in time, but remained a young man in accomplishment, a young man in what he had achieved. This was the vision that Rev. Meir Premishlan's father had in heaven, in the Olama Emes, a place where there was no joking, where there was no late sanas, but rather this was an accurate and an objective and fair observation. And when Rav Meir Permishlan heard this Siyam HaRav Meir, Rav Meir learned the following. He said, Ein vayihi elat tzara. Vayihi tzara gedolahi. The word vayihi always connotes negativity. It always connotes something which is, something which is sad. So what is it? I'm going to move my microphone because people might be getting backdrop. Is that better? Vayihi connotes, uh, connotes sadness. So what is the sadness here? What is the sadness taking place that we begin Vayihi? Where is their sadness? So Rameda Premishlan said, you know what the sadness is? It says, Vayihi Kesha Miketz. Miketz means at the end. Miketz Sov Chayeha Adam. At the end of a person's life. As Koshnos of Enam Kim Shnasayim Yamim. Yamim Mu'atim. The days they pass quickly. The days they passed fast. So that is Rameer Pramishlan's observation, his homiletical interpretation of this opening Pasuk. Vayihi is a lush in a language of sadness. And why is this sad? Because Miketz, indeed, at the end of a person's life, when he realizes, Yamim, when a person realizes, no matter how many years he lived, relative to how long he could have lived, meaning living each day to its fullest, how much we could have accomplished, how much we could have achieved, measured by the difference we could have made from a heavenly perspective, it's Shnasayim Yamim. It's only two years. You could die at 120 years old, but Miketz at the end, it's Shnasayim Yamim. It's only like two years. And why is it only like two years? It's only like two years because relative to who we could have been and what we could have accomplished, we achieved so little. There was so much more that we could have done, so much more of a difference that we could have made. There's another interpretation Rameer Pramishlan and Rabbarach of Mezhbet say, Vayim Miketz, when you reach the end of your life, Shnasayim Yamin, that word Shana can be a year. Shnasayim can mean that you lived for two years. But there's another interpretation, which is Shena, which means to sleep. A person can live a full life and Miketz at the end of their life, they look back and they reflect and they say, I slept through my life. I slept to walk through life. I was sleeping even while I was awake. What a waste. How much I, how much I wasted. How much I didn't take advantage of. Because the Gemara says, Hayoshe bato ki dami. Chazal say that a person who sits idle, a person who passively and complacently and apathetically lets life pass them by, then it's as if they're sleeping. They're sleeping even while they are awake. They're sleepwalking through their life. What an absolute mistake. What an absolute tragedy. Ben Franklin is quoted as saying, some people die at the age of 25, but they're not buried until they're 75 years old. Some people die at the age of 25, but they're not buried until the age of 75 years old. What does that mean? What happens to the years that are in between those 50 years? If they die at 25 and they're not buried, what did he mean, Ben Franklin? They're not buried till 75. What happens in between is Shnasayim Yamim. Rav Moshe Yaakov explains the word Shnei can mean two, but Shein, as we just said, could also mean sleep. Vayihi, it's so sad when we get upstairs and we found out that we were sleepwalking through life that we slept so much of our lives away, that we were on autopilot, we were mindless, we were simply 
the uh, creatures of momentum that carried us. We were numb to the signals that Hashem was sending us. We were oblivious to the opportunities that are around us, and we wasted and squandered the potential that's inside us. We were sleeping. Vayehi, how sad it is, Miketz, at the end of life, Shnasayim Yamim, when we realize that even if we live to 120, we only have two years of productivity, or that we were sleeping through our lives, sleepwalking through life. And that's what the holiday of Hanukkah comes to remind us. You know, we're in the middle of the winter. It doesn't feel like it here in Florida. It's a magnificent day outside, but we're in the darkest part of the calendar. We're in the shortest part of the calendar. We're in the depth of the season of the winter in which we have fallen into habits and patterns in which we've become mindless creatures who momentum is simply carrying us. And then comes Hanukkah. Hanukkah is meant to wake us up, to arouse us. Rebbe Eger Bikiveger's grandson, who became a Hasidish Rebbe, we spoke about him in shul several weeks ago, says, you know, there are two ways to wake someone up when they're in a deep sleep. I had to wake one of my daughters this morning for school. So she told me her alarm went off. I said, your alarm went off, that's nice, but you're still sleeping in bed. You gotta get up, you gotta get to school. So the second way that you can wake someone if the alarm fails is, what does a parent do? They turn the light on in the room. That's when the kid really tells how much they love you. They put the covers over their head and they yell how much they don't love you. And they say, turn it off, I have 17 loses, let me go back to sleep. When a person fails to wake up from the alarm, what we need to do is turn on, what we need to do is turn on the light. When you turn on the light, that's what wakes people up. And so, says Rebbe um, Eger, the same is true in our lives. You know, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur came, we blew the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, and the, Rosh, the shofar of Rosh Hashanah, it's an alarm. It says, Uru, Uru, wake up, Yeshena Mishinascham, those who are sleeping from their slumber. Wake up, wake up, stop sleepwalking through life. But you know what happens after Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur? We're awake for a brief moment. The alarm awakens us. And you know what we all collectively do? Snooze. One snooze, a second snooze, a third snooze. You know what? I'm going to finally take care of my health and wellness when I'll finally take my davening or learning seriously, when I'll finally work on my midos. Snooze. I'll get to it later in life. I'll get to it later in this year. I'll get to it later. Snooze, snooze, snooze. The alarm of the shofar comes. Rosh Hashanah Yom Noram come and we snooze. So what happens? Then comes the second method. Chanukah comes. And if the snooze failed us, it's time to turn on the light. We turn on the light and that's what wakes us up. That's when we can no longer stay in our beds. And that's the message of the Haftorah, which tells us of a different Hanukkah. The Haftorah we read this past Shabbos, Shabbos Hanukkah, the inauguration of the menorah in the second base of Mikdash. Zechariah Hanavi tells us, The angel who talked to me came back and he woke me up as a man is wakened from sleep. And he said to me, this angel, What do you see? He said, what do you see? And I answered, I see a lampstand. I see a lamp. I see a candelabra. It's all gold. The vision of the menorah of Hanukkah is associated with being woken up from sleep. It's what the Haftorah of Shabbos Hanukkah tells us. Vayihi, how sad, Miketz, at the end of life. Shnasayim yamim, we realized we were sleepwalking through life. Stop sleeping. If the shofar and its alarm failed, you pressed snooze and went back to sleep, and now we're in the middle of the winter. It's Kislev, it's Teves, it's December, it's January. Turn the light on in the room so you no longer can stay in bed. Wake up. Hanukkah rattles us. It shakes us. It's an extreme alarm. It turns on the light. It breaks us out of the dark sleep and slumber, out of habit and rote, of fatalism and predeterminism, and into the illuminated world of opportunity and of free will, of conscious and mindful living. It takes us into a world of growing, of achieving, of making progress. When Aaron Akoin met Lit, 
the original menorah in the Mishkan, the Pasuk describes Vayaskein Aaron, that the Torah, Moshe, uh, relayed to Aaron what he was meant to do, and Vayaskein Aaron, Aaron did what he was meant to do, what he was supposed to do. And Rashi quotes our rabbis who tell us, Vayaskein Aaron, the Torah testifying that Aaron did what he was meant to do, Lahaget Shvachosh Loshina, it tells us the praise of Aaron, that he didn't change, he didn't deviate whatsoever from what he was meant to do. So the obvious question is, Aaron a Kohen? Aaron, the righteous Aaron, do you think that he's going to distort or manipulate or change what Hashem had told him to do? What do we need to be told? This is the praise of Aaron that he didn't change. So the Imre Noam, the holy Jikavar, the Jikavar suggests that perhaps what it means, Shana, is not that he didn't change. Shiloshina, he didn't change. But rather, Shiloshina, that he didn't sleepwalk through the experience. Aaron lit the menorah, and then he lit it again, and then he lit it again. So we become creatures of habit. We settle in and we get used to the pattern. I put on my tefillin. I daven my shemona esrei. I light my candles. I do my mitzvos. They become mindless. We become unconscious while we do it. The shevach, the praise of Aaron Vayaskein, that he did it, not shiloshina, that he didn't change, shiloshina, that he didn't sleep, that he was awake, that he woke himself up. This is the yant of the holiday, the chag ha'orim, this is the light, the or haganas, this hidden, wonderful, messianic, spiritual light inside us. It can wake us up. Even when the alarm has failed and we're still asleep, then turning on the light can wake us up so that we can go. I've told the story before of a senior manager at a successful business firm who was retiring and there were two employees in the firm both vying for the job, both wanted to be the successor, both applied for the position. One had worked in the company 15 years and the other had only been there for five. And they each interviewed and they each, uh, they each uh, made the proposal that they should be the ones to get the job. And lo and behold, it was time to award the position and it was given not to the one who had been there longer 15 years, it was given to the one who had been there five years. And you can imagine the employee who had been there longer, more experienced, more senior, 15 years, barges into the boss's office and says, I don't understand. What did I do wrong? Why am I being denied and deprived? I've been here three times longer. So the boss turns to the man and he says, no, you misunderstand. You see, you've really only worked here one year. You've just repeated that one year 15 times. He's worked here five years. Every year he grew. Every year he learned. Every year he contributed more. So you may have been here 15 years and he five, but he's been here five times longer than you because you were really only here one year and you repeated it 15 times. And the same is true for our lives. Are we going to live the same year over and over again? Obviously not the same understanding of the parsha. I'm preaching to the choir. If you're here with us this morning, if you're listening, you're looking to grow in your understanding of the parsha. But how many of us are davening the same way 20, 30, 50, 80 years how many of us are approaching mitzvahs and our relationship with Hashem and our conversations and our amun and bitachon, our dveikas with Hashem, the same way we did at our bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, we've not grown at all. We're living the same life, the same year over and over and over again, instead of being able to look back and measure how much we've grown and how much we've advanced. And that's also the lesson of the menorah. I'm looking over because my menorah is right over here. A menorah, the menorah, it's a machlokas, beishamai beisilo. Beishamai se pochis vaholich. We start with eight and then we scale down to one. Beis we start with one, and most of the we add on until we get there. Beis opinion also has a lot of merit, and there's depth to it, even though we don't follow it. I shared that yesterday in a little video that I put out. We follow the opinion of Beis and Beis is our philosophy in life. Our philosophy is, Mosif Vaholich, we add on. We don't lifelessly and mindlessly go through the same thing eight nights in a row. We don't light one candle 18 times. We don't live the same year 80 years. 
but rather Mosif Vaholich. This is our philosophy. This is our mentality. This is who we're meant to be. We're meant to be Mosif Vaholich, to add on and to add on and to add on and to continually grow. So this is the opening Pasuk, according to Rav Meir at least homiletically, this is the opening Pasuk, the vision of his father. Vayihi, how sad, Miketz, at the end of your life, Shnasayim Yamim, when you on the calendar lived for many years, but in terms of achievement and contribution, you failed to be Mosif Vaholich. You lived one year over and over and over again. We're sleepwalking through life. How tragic and how sad. And therefore we begin with the word Vayihi. Our mission, our mandate is to be Mosif Vaholich. To add on and to add on and to add on over and over again. Now the Pasuk says, It was the end of two years. Paro Cholein, Paro is dreaming. And he has this whole dream. Now what you'll notice and Parshal begins with the Paro, the leader of Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world. And he's experiencing these startling dreams, so startling, so shaken is he from them, that he summons interpreters. And his interpreters, his own staff, they fail him. Nobody's ever able to successfully suggest an interpretation that satisfies, uh, that resonates with Paro. He rejects them all. Paro doesn't just have one dream. He has another dream. Now, Paro is not the first biblical figure to dream. Who else had dreams, meaningful dreams? Obviously, Yosef. We read last week's Parsha about Yosef and his meaningful dreams. But even before Yosef, Parsha's Vayetze begins with the dreams of Yaakov. He went to sleep on a pile of stones, on a pile of rocks, and he saw the image of the angels descending and ascend, or ascending and descending from the heaven and the earth. And he's moved by his dream. What happens to Yaakov when he wakes up from his dream? What happens to Yaakov when he wakes up from his dream? He's transformed by the experience. He says, I didn't know God was in this place. I didn't realize Hashem was here. He doesn't go back to sleep. How could he sleep? He's so jarred. He's so startled. He's so awakened by this dream, by this image of being in the presence of the Almighty of Hashem, that he's transformed from the experience. And he wakes up changed. And in fact, he regrets going to sleep in the first place. He says, Hashem is here and I know. If I knew, I never would have gone to sleep here. Shalom Shwadron, the great Magid of Yerushalayim, encourages us to contrast Yaakov's reaction to his dream with Paro's reaction to his dream. Think about it. Yaakov has this dream. He senses Hashem. He's startled. He's moved. And he wakes up energized, ready to greet the day, regretting he ever fell asleep and unable to fall asleep again. What happens to Paro? What happens to Paro? Paro dreams of seven fat cows, bizarrely being devoured by seven thin cows. And the dream is intense, it's unusual. It disturbs him, it jolts him awake. And what happens next with Paro? In contrast to Yaakov, Vayishan, Vayachalom Shenis. You know what Paro does? He turns right over and he goes back to Shluf. He goes back to sleep. And the Torah tells us he has a second dream. And this one too is disturbing. And again, he's shaken to the point of waking up. And what does he do next? The Pasuk tells us, says Rav Shwadron, the Magad, Vayihi Baboker. He obviously had turned over to go back to sleep again because it's only in the morning. It's only when his alarm and it's only when Mrs. Paro turns on the light to finally get him out of bed. It's only It's only in the morning when he finds the energy and the courage to address the dreams. What does he do the whole night despite these two disturbing and jarring dreams? He turns over and he goes right back to sleep. Shezrav Shadron, you learn such a lesson in the contrast between Yaakov Avinu and Paro. Yaakov wakes up and he's ready to go. And Paro turns over, he has a second dream. And after the second dream, he turns over and it's only in the morning that he wakes up 
ready to address. Rishwa Jordan encourages us to look at a third dreamer. Who is the third dreamer in the list? Shlomo HaMelech. One night while sleeping, Hashem visits Shlomo HaMelech in a dream and asks him to make a wish that he's going to grant. And Shlomo nobly asks, you know what he says? You know what I want? He doesn't ask for, you know, all the wishes in the world. He asks if he can have one thing, a lev shomeya. He says, I want a listening heart. I want to be able to sensitively uh, understand and listen to the problems of your children, and I want to be able to judge them and offer good advice to them, sage advice to them. Shlomo awakens from this dream, and what does he do next, says Rav Shadron. If it weren't Shabbos Hanukkah, this is the Haftorah that Miketz, this, this year we'll have this Haftorah, because Miketz is sometimes Shabbos Hanukkah, as it was my Bar Mitzvah. This year it's not. We had Shabbos Hanukkah. By the Shabbos, it will no longer be Hanukkah. So the Haftorah for Miketz is going to begin, the Shabbos. Vaikatz Shlomo, Shlomo doesn't go back to bed. He doesn't turn over and fall back asleep. He wakes up. What does he do? He, like Yaakov, he wakes up invigorated, transformed, inspired. Says the Magad of Shadron that if Paro had Shlomo's dream in which God asked him what he wanted him to do, he would have answered, you know what I want? A few more minutes of sleep. Paro wanted to sleepwalk through his life. Paro wanted to just fall asleep and be numb to everything around him. Just a few more minutes. Just a few more minutes of not having to deal with reality, of not having to deal with my potential. Just a few more minutes of sleepwalking through life. Hashem spoke to Yaakov, Paro, and Shlomo through their dreams. Yaakov and Shlomo saw it as a call to action. Paro turned over and went right back to sleep. And the question is, our dreams, our dreams, either while we're sleeping or while we're awake, what do they do for us, and how do they inspire us, and what do we do with those dreams? You see a lot about dreams, about sleepwalking through life. The light of Hanukkah should wake us up, should arouse us, should enlighten us, should illuminate us, and should uh, enable us, enrich us, to be able to be transformed and inspired to go and to be able to lead the next chapter of our lives. Okay. Uparo cholem. Parocholem. We said there's something unusual about this word parocholem. What's unusual about the word parocholem? What would I have expected? What should it see? Not cholem, but uparo chalam. So why does it say parocholem? He is dreaming. It should say chalam. He had a dream. Says the Ibn Ezra on the Pasuk. I won't look at it inside. We're already running late. Story of my life. Says the Ibn Ezra, uparo cholem is identical with uparo hayacholem. Had it said uparo hayacholem, hayacholem would have meant he dreamt. So cholem can be used even for the past, says the Ibn Ezra, a great grammarian, because we read it hayacholem, not cholem. But Rabbi Soloveitchik offers a different suggestion in his wonderful, the uh, Orthodox Union, Rabbi Soloveitchik, wonderful chomish, I highly recommend. The Rav says the following, the change in paro occurred precisely when Yosef was to be elevated to power. Paro would have been disconcerted over his dreams, even if this metamorphosis had not taken place. However, to accept Yosef's interpretation, Paro himself had to be a dreamer, a visionary. Otherwise, he would not have chosen Yosef to manage the economy of Egypt. He preferred Yosef's interpretation to that of others, not on objective grounds, but on purely subjective ones. Dreamer met dreamer. It's an incredible insight of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Says the Rav, you know, the two types of dreams that we have. We have dreams while we're sleeping, but then you also have to be willing to be a dreamer while you're awake. Many of us have dreams. I happen to be a person who has very vivid dreams. 
You could ask my wife and children or those closest to me. Sometimes my dreams are so vivid. When I wake up, it takes me time to distinguish between reality and the dream. I can hold a grudge against the person who did nothing wrong to me other than in my dream until I can work out the fact that it was only a dream. And the opposite, I can be so grateful and overjoyed. I have very vivid dreams. There are people who dream. They fall into REM sleep and they dream. But there are many who when they wake up, the dream was just a dream and they move on so quickly. And then they go back to this very hard life of a cynical life. You know, it's not enough to dream while you're asleep. You have to have the capacity to dream while you're awake. So cholem, the reason it's in the present tense, suggests Rabbi Salavechik, is that Paro didn't just chalam, it's not just that he dreamt in his sleep, he is a cholem. He remains a dreamer even while he is awake. What, how does he know that? Because when Paro meets Yosef and Yosef offers this interpretation, Paro says, you know, I see that vision. I can buy into that. I can share that dream of the economy of Egypt. Paro is not just a dreamer while he's sleeping, he's a dreamer even while he's awake, and that's what makes an enormous difference. Now, Paro's dream is different than the way he relays it to Yosef. When Paro has the dream it describes, Pasuk Beis, V'hineh I'm sorry, in the first Pasuk, Pasuk Aleph, V'hineh omed al hayor. In his dream, where is he? He's omed, he's standing where? Al hayor, on the river. What river? Doesn't even need to tell us that it's Egypt, He's standing on the Yardin, on the Jordan, on the Nile, on the uh, Nile River, rather. Al-Hayor. V'hinei min and from this river he sees the seven cows, and so on and so forth. What does it mean, V'hinei made Al-Hayor? And how is Al-Hayor different than later, when he relays the dream to Yosef, he says, Omeid al-Sfas Hayor. He doesn't say, I was standing on the river. He says, I was standing on the bank of the river. What's the difference between standing on the bank of the river and standing on the river? Why did Paro feel motivated to have to change when he relayed the dream to Yosef? So again, we turn to Rabbi Soloveitchik and he tells us, the preposition al has the connotation of nearness, of proximity. But there's another meaning. Al is a biblical idiom, as in vihine Hashem nitzav alav. Hashem was standing over him, paying special attention to him. Rashi. The word al describes a relationship. Yaakov dreamt of God's concern for him. And now, when Paro is al hayor, the Nile is not merely a river. The economy of Egypt in antiquity depended on the Nile, as it does today. Torah speaks of how this unique geographical feature was responsible for either abundance or for famine. In Dvarim, it tells us, when contrasting the Egypt and Israel, Israel is a place where our eyes are on Hashem always, rely on the rain. Only when the rain falls will there be what to eat. But in Egypt, they rely on the Nile. Local rain did not play a role in the agricultural economy. Life instead depended on the Nile. Rashi says no other river is called the river except the Nile because the whole country consists of artificially constructed canals and the Nile flows into them and fills them with water since rain does not fall regularly in Egypt. The river became the very symbol of Egyptian civilization. Paro thus saw himself omid al-hayyaur. He was concerned with the destiny of Egypt as a land and as a people. So says the Rav, what do you mean he's omid al-hayyaur? Al-hayyaur is not just describing geographically where he was standing in this dream when this unusual event took place, but al-hayyaur is describing, in the Rav's words, Paro's concern, his perspective, his relationship with the Egyptian economy. And I would humbly suggest that maybe it means more. We know that Paro saw himself so arrogantly as responsible for the success of the economy. We know later Paro 
a later Paro, relieves himself at the river, doesn't want anyone to know he's not a deity or a god. So Paro historically sees himself so arrogantly as really the source and the cause of the Egyptian economy. So maybe Hineo made al Hayor, he's standing over the river. It means the people worship the river because they see the river as the source of their sustenance. And Paro says, I stand over the river. I'm even greater than the river. In his later description of the dream to Yosef, Paro used the term Omed Asfas Hayor. Unlike the earlier phrase here, Omed Hayor, Asfas Hayor has no connotation other than physical description of the scene in his dream. And Rabbi Soloveitchik suggests, maybe in this way, he was actually testing Yosef. He, when he describes the dream, he says, I was standing asfasayor. And there it's just a geographic description. When, pa- when Yosef interprets Paro's dream, he doesn't interpret it as asfasayor. He interprets it as alhayor, as the dream originally happened. And therefore, maybe that's why Paro was so taken. Unlike the other interpretations which he rejected, the interpretation of Yosef had something superior. Namely, Yosef saw in Paro's dream something that Paro himself didn't even relay. That's how astute, that's how insightful Yosef was. Paro had the dream al He said it was al-svas And Yosef knew it was al nonetheless. And maybe that's why Paro was convinced that Yosef was the right dream interpreter. Asher of Meir Premishlan, our second of Meir today, who says, maybe this is what we say. We say this in Tehillim Peches. It's in one of our Shir Shalyoms. The Medrash on the Pasuk says, Eidus bi Yosef Samo, Betseso al-Arts Mitzrayim, Sfas layadati eshma. It's an unusual Pasuk to even translate what it means. The testimony of Yosef when he left Mitzrayim, Sfas layadati eshma, as Divrei HaMedrash Halalu, the Tzadig of Meir Pramishlan explained, that when Paro has his dream, Paro cholem yinei mer or, and yet when he communicates it, he says, Bechala mi hinini omer asvas or. So Yosef immediately corrects him. And that's what the Pasuk means. What's the Eidus that Yosef gave Paro that he was a Chacham? To have been appointed over all of Egypt. When Yosef corrected him on the word Svas, that Paro said Svas HaYeor, and Yosef corrected him, it wasn't Svas HaYeor, it was on the Yeor itself, and it was in that correction, Svas HaYeor, that's the Eidus that Yosef gave, that Paro was moved by, and elevated him on top of all of Mitzrayim, a very beautiful interpretation of what that Pasuk maybe means. Okay, let's continue. Perak Mem Aleph Pasuk Tes, moving right along. So we have these two unusual dreams, and Paro uh, awakens, he had fallen back to sleep as we discussed, and he calls interpreters, and they all fail him. So the Sar Hamashkim turns to Paro and he says, Listen, I've got a great suggestion for you. I have the per- I got a guy. You know the people, t- I got a guy. Whatever you need, I've got a guy. Sar Hamashkim says, I've got a guy. I've got a dream interpreter guy. But in order to be able to tell you how I have that guy, I have to tell you where I met him. And to tell you where I met him, it was in prison. And why was I in prison? Because I had failed you. So he takes a risk, Saramashkim, in telling Paro about Yosef. Paro He gives him the whole history. If you remember, you were outraged at me. You threw me in prison. We had dreams there. And there was a na'ar ivri eved. The Saratabachim. There was a na'ar. There was a young man with us there in Egypt. Vayedaber Sar Hamashkim. The Sar Hamashkim here speaks to, speaks to 
um, speaks to Paro and tells him that I have to remind you of how I got there, but I got a guy for you. I've got the perfect guy to interpret your dreams. So here we turn to our first Eish Tamid, our first Rav Yisrael Meir Druk of the day. We have been uh, on the Parsha Shir this year studying so many of his beautiful insights of the great Rav Yisrael Meir Druk. I actually spoke to him this week and I told him how we've been sharing his Torah and he was so, of course, gratified by it. So Rashi on this Pasuk, the series of Sukkim that Saramashkim reminded Paro when we were in Egypt. Let's just finish the Pasuk. While we were in prison, there was this Na'ar. Now Yosef was an advanced age. He wasn't a young man at this time. And yet, nonetheless, the Saramashkim speaks so derogatively about Yosef, so dismissively about Yosef. He's a Na'ar. He's a young lad. He's Ivri. He's an author. He's an Evid, the Saratabachim. He's a slave. We told him all of our dreams. And he so accurately was able to interpret our dreams. It turned out to be true. And as he predicted, as he interpreted, thus, so it happened. I was returned to my post and the baker was hung. And Rashi here in the Pasuk says, Cursed are wicked people who can't just do a nice thing. The Sarah Mashkim threw in such gratuitous insults at Yosef. Why was it relevant? Paro says, I'm looking for a guy. I need someone to interpret my dreams. And Sarah Mashkim has a guy. So why doesn't he just tell him, here's my guy? Why does he have to offer all the derogatory, degrading insults? Na'ar, says Rashi, What did the Sarah Mashkim mean by Na'ar? He's a kid. He's not worthy of greatness. He may be successful. He may come out and interpret your dreams. But if he does, even if he does successfully, don't elevate him. Ivri, I feel the shonenu and a maskir. He's an Ivri. He's an other. He's an outsider. He speaks another language. He's a foreigner. Eved, he's a slave. What are you going to dress him in aristocracy, in royalty? You're going to elevate him and, 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 uh, and give him the wardrobe of an officer? He's an Eved. He's an Eved. So wonders of Druk. What in the world was Sarah Mashkim thinking? Was he trying to bias Paro against Yosef? Didn't he know it would never work? After all, Paro is bereft of an interpretation. Paro is startled, he's bothered, he can't find peace or solace. He needs someone to interpret the dreams. He knows Yosef's going to succeed. Yosef's going to hit a grand slam and knock it out of the park. And when Yosef succeeds, what will all of this bias do? Why will it help him to have spoken so, so derogatorily, so discriminatorily against Yosef? Immediately when Yosef is able to successfully interpret the dream in a way that satisfies Paro, he's going to appoint him to his side. So what was the point? It seems so gratuitous. Listener of Druk's answer. The great Chavetz Chaim and the Alshech both explain why is Lashon Hara, why are gossip and slander so pernicious? Why are they so terrible? We know we have a principle that you never get a second chance to make what? A first impression. We have a concept in Torah, we have a concept in business, in the secular world. We have a concept in the social world that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. The notion of a first impression. So when 
A person is prejudiced before they ever meet the other, and they're told something about the other. It seeps in like poison. You contaminate. You absolutely embed within the listener a bias against the person they've not yet even met. Have you ever had someone create a bias? Oh, that person is this, that, and the other. And then you meet them. And you can know that other person for years. And your own personal experience with that other person will disprove the bias you were told before you ever met them. And yet, years later, you still remember what you were told about them. Years later, it still impacts you, the seeds that were planted in you about the other person. Nemar be Gemara, the Gemara says, Minayin l'shnayim shabo l'din echad lavash samrututin v'echad lavash itztaldin svats me'amana shomram lavash kamosa oli bishu kamoscha The halacha is, the Gemara in Shavuos, Daflamid Aleph tells us that if two people come to Beisden, two litigants come to Beisden, and one comes in a custom-made suit and the other is wearing tattered clothing, that you turn to the two litigants and you say, either go out, either both of you put on the tattered clothing, some of the tattered clothing today could be more expensive than the custom-made suit, which is bizarre. But anyway, let's assume really tattered clothing, the tattered clothing of a poor person, not the ripped jeans that cost $400. That make no sense. So you turn to the two litigants and you say, either you both go out and put on the tattered clothing, or you both go out and come back in, in custom-made suits. But you can't one come in in the custom-made suit and the other come in in the ripped jeans. Why not? Why not? The reason is because when you walk in that courtroom and the judges take their first look at you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. The first impression is powerful. That's why we have such an awesome responsibility in how we talk about others, especially to somebody who's never met them, because we are planting the first impression. We are planting seeds that will last a very long time and will be difficult to overcome, even if what we said was done in a moment of anger or of revenge. A poor person, we say, change your clothing. How will it help? Once the trial begins... Once the trial begins, the judges are going to learn that that's the poor person, that's the rich person. So how's it going to help that you get them dressed up in the same costume, in the same clothing? Ultimately, the judges are going to learn the truth. How will it help? Says Rav Druk, you know why it helps? Because you never get a second chance to make a first impression. That first impression is so powerful, that's why we have to be very careful in protecting it. And that's why he says, that's why uh, Sar Hamashkim was trying to bias Paro. That even though, yes, Yosef was going to succeed and Yosef was going to interpret the dream and when he did, then Paro would fall in love with him. But Paro would always have in the recesses of his mind that Yosef's a Na'ar and an Ivri and an Eved. And that's what Sarah Mashkin wanted to achieve. He wanted to plant the seeds of suspicion and doubt about Yosef, even if Yosef ultimately would turn out to be successful. Okay, Pasuk Memalaf, Perak Memalaf, Pasuk Yudalad. So Yosef is summoned. Saramashkim had a guy, and it's time to go get that guy. And that guy is none other than Yosef. So the Pasuk, we've turned the page, page 224 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, and the Torah tells us, Paro is convinced, let's give this man a chance. So he summons Yosef, and they go get him from the pit, he changes his clothing, the Sforno here on this Pasuk, Listen to what the Sforno says on this Pasuk. 
in the midst of Corona. I don't even remember what month we're up to. Eight, nine, ten months. How many months we've been living with this pandemic. And yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccine has begun to ship. And in our community here in South Florida, it's even begun to be administered. Um, but still, we're in the depth and the darkness of this pandemic. The second wave, the third wave, and we're being warned that we are the devastation is yet to come. It feels like a very dark time. It feels like we're in a bore. We're in the bottom of a pit, of an endless pit, of a hopeless and dark pit. How do we get out? So listen to what the Sfarno says on this Pasuk. Perak Memalaf, chapter 41, Pasuk Yedalad, verse 14. Says the Sfarno, Ravavadya Sfarno, the great Italian Rishon. He says the following, Vayritzu menabor. Just picture Yosef is sitting in the pit. What does it mean that Yosef's sitting in the pit? Just picture it for a moment. How long has Yosef been sitting in this pit, by the way? How long has he been sitting there? 12 years. 10 years originally. And then when he did over Hishtadlas, when he did uh, extreme initiative, he had to sit there for another two years. So he's been sitting in the pit for 12 years. And all of a sudden, they call Yosef, Jew! Come, we're taking you out. Says the Svarno, That's the way Hashem's salvation comes. It comes in an instant. Like the Pasuk in Yeshayahu says that my salvation is closely approaching. And as the Pasuk says, Pasuk in Tehillim. If only my nation would listen to me, in an instant I would subdue their enemies. We know that we left Egypt after 210 years of persecution, oppression, slavery, servitude, murder, genocide. All of a sudden at the end of 210 years, we left hastily. We left in an instant. We left quickly, so much so that the dough didn't have time to rise. And the same is the way it's going to happen in the future, says the Sforno. The same is going to happen in the future, says the Sforno. It's going to happen. It's going to feel like it's happening in an instant. And that is the way Geula comes. And that should give all of us hope. It should give all of us faith. It should make us all excited. It comes in an instant. It comes out of nowhere. So Yosef is caught. He's unkept. He's unshaven. And the big moment arrives and they take him out of the pit. And they have to shave him, they have to give him clothing, they have to be able to take him out, they have to get him ready. And the Svarno says, this is the way that Mashiach is going to come. This is the way all salvation and Geula arrives. It comes keherifayin. It comes in an instant. It comes even when we don't expect it. Even when we think it's never going to happen. And so the person who's single and desperate to get married, or the person who's struggling to be able to become pregnant and have that child, or the person who's desperate for that job, or the parnasa how are going to pay the next bill, don't ever give up hope. Because think of Yosef. Yosef wasn't in the pit overnight. He wasn't in the pit for a year. Yosef was in this jail, unjustly accused, falsely accused for 12 years. 12 years he's there. And all of a sudden, the Yeshua comes kaharifayim. It comes in an instant and it comes out of nowhere. And Revolba writes that that's the way it's going to feel when Mashiach comes. That's why it's so critical and important for us to never give up hope to never be too despondent, to never think it's too late, but to realize that the same way it happened for Yosef and the same way it happened for our ancestors in Mitzrayim, it's a preview of what Mashiach is going to be like when it comes later. And Revolba in his Shirei Chumash points us to later in the Parsha, when Yosef's brothers are brought before him and he seats them according to their age and serves them food and he gives Binyam in the last and the final portion. And it's astounding that despite all the clues, 
to the true identity of Yosef, that he is in fact their brother, they fail to realize who he is. They don't recognize him as our Torah, as our Pasha says. He recognizes them and they don't recognize him. And it's only after Yosef reveals himself that everything falls into place in hindsight. And so on the one hand, yes, the brothers, and spoiler alert, next week's Pasha, Yosef reveals himself to the brothers. Sorry, I just spoiled it for you. The brothers certainly react and recoil with a sense of on the one hand, yes, they realize their accountability as the picture has come into focus. They now realize their responsibility for what they had done. But the Mashkiach Rav Yerucham, Rav Yerucham Levavitz also points out that at the same time, everything came into focus. They thought that they had no food and no provisions. They thought that their brother was taken from them and they'd have to go back to their father without him. They thought that their world was caving in and all of a sudden, in an instant, keherifayin, Yosef says, brothers, relax. It's me. It's me, Yosef, your brother. Everything's good. Everything's good. We're a family again. And you have endless provisions. And you're wealthy. And how is Abba? And you're going to come to Mitzrayim. We're going to live together. Keherifayin. In an instant, the Geula comes. Whether it was for Yosef when he's called out of the pit, or whether it was for the brothers when Yosef reveals himself, or whether it will be for us, says Revolba, when Mashiach is going to come, the Yeshua comes, the Yeshua comes, and we should be ready for it. So never become too hopeless. Never become too depressed or despondent. Never stop believing that Hashem can come. Never stop believing. The Imre Chaim, the great Imre Chaim, I have to find him. Here he is, my Imre Chaim. The Halig of Vision of Tzad. You didn't think we were going to go without an Imre Chaim. So the Imre Chaim, the great Vision of Tzad says the following, Vayishlach paro, vayikra es Yosef. This is a chassidish Torah. Listen carefully. Vayishlach paro. The name paro, he says, Imsholeich ha'adam eito es paro. Paro is pe-ra. Pe-resh ayin hei is pe-ra. So vayishlach paro. If we're willing to purge and get rid of our pe-ra, of the mouth that speaks slander and gossip, of the mouth that has rage and anger, of the mouth that speaks with ego and arrogance. If Vayishlach Paro, if we can get rid of our Paro, our Pera, then Vayikras Yosef. If we're Mekadesh Lashono, Vayikras Yosef, Mamshech Alav Kedushas Yosef. The way to become Yosef, the re- way to realize the Yosef in us, the holy spark in us, is Vayishlach Paro. Get rid of the Pera and Vayikras Yosef, then you can welcome, then you can discover the Kedushas Yosef within each and every one of us. Okay, a lot more to cover. Now, they have this conversation, Yosef and Paro meet, and so much to talk about within this conversation. Yosef is the first Kirov professional. Tomorrow night on Behind the Bima, we're going to have Lori Palatnik, Momentum, an enormous force of Kirov in this world. Yosef, the first Kirov professional. He doesn't provide the Bible codes. He doesn't say, here are seven uh, wonders of Jewish history. He doesn't make the arguments for God's existence. All he does is start talking about Hashem. I think we talked about this last week in the Living with Emunashir. If you're not part of it, join the movement. Wednesday mornings, 845. You could listen online. We have close to 200 shirim of Living with Emunah, how you could live with Hashem every day in your life. Living with Emunah. Wednesday mornings, 845. You can find them online. So we spoke about Yosef. Shem Shemayim Shagor Bafiv. Yosef is the first seminary girl. Mir Hashem, Be'ezrus Hashem, Hashem. Everything is thank you, Hashem. Baruch Hashem. And when he does that with Paro, all of a sudden Paro turns around and he says, wow, Elohim, all of a sudden he says, um, Paro starts talking about God himself. Paro invokes, have you ever met someone who has Ruach Elohim? Paro starts talking about God himself. So, Perak Memalaf Pasuk Lamed Gimel. Memalaf Lamed Gimel. So, what happens? 
Yosef is interpreting the dreams. Now let Paro seek out a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Yosef does something, which is something that I am very sensitive to. Uh, Paro is looking for someone to interpret his dream, but Yosef doesn't just interpret the dream. Yosef doesn't just point out that the dream is going to pose a problem. You're going to have fat years, but then you're going to have thin years. Your economy is going to, is going to plummet. Yosef doesn't just point out the problem. What else does he do? He offers a solution. This Pasuk. Here's the solution. Yosef is the first, um, Yosef is, is uh, saving the economy because he doesn't just point out the problem. He says, here's an economic solution. Here's what we're going to do in the fat years in order to be able to save, in order to be able to have for the thin years. He doesn't just see the problem, he offers a solution. And Rabbi Soloveitchik points out on this Pasuk, Rabbi Soloveitchik says that when he offers the solution, he says, um, you're looking for a someone who's Navon and Chacham. Someone who's Navon and Chacham. And Paro turns to Yosef and he says, well, if that's the case, if that's your suggestion, if that's who I need to run the economy, then the Fed chair, then that's you. I'm hiring you to be the next Fed chair. Why? Because ein chacham, ein navon, v'chacham kamocha. Go to Pasuk Lamites. Vayomer Paro Yosef, achareho dia elokimoscha eskozos. Again, you see the success of his nuanced passive outreach. It's a passive outreach strategy where you're not proselytizing, but simply when you talk about God, it is a passive outreach strategy. And it's successful because Paro turns to Yosef and he says, achareho dia elokimoscha eskozos. Now that God has revealed this whole plan to you, there's not a Navon and Chacham like you. So what happened here? Yosef tells him, you need an Ish Navon v'chacham. And what does Paro say? Navon What was Yosef thinking when he suggested you need someone Navon v'chacham? And why is Paro responding, there is no Navon v'chacham like you. You are the most Navon v'chacham around. So Rabbi Soloveitchik says, you know what Navon and Chacham are? Is that just, are they synonyms? Are we just repeating? Or is there a difference between them? He says a Chacham is one who is somehow guided by a mysterious light. To run the Egyptian empire, Yosef had to have the imagination. Chachma is not enough. The Navon translates the imagination into fact. Paro recognized that Yosef possessed both qualities. He was Chacham and Navon, a man with a great imagination, but also one who could implement his plan. You know, you have dreamers. We said earlier that Paro is a dreamer. Paro doesn't just dream while he's sleeping. Paro dreams even while he's awake. You have to have vision, and you have to have dreams, and you have to have creativity. But very often, the profile of the person who has the dreams and the creativity and the vision is the person who struggles to get them done, can't implement them, is lost. You have brilliant minds, dreamers, they can't match their socks together. You know, Rabbi Soloveitchik never drove because I heard this story, I don't think it's apocryphal. He had once gotten his license and he drove one time and his mind had wandered. He was probably trying to figure out a Shver Rambam and almost got in an accident and they took his license away. Some people aren't meant to drive. They're not living down here in this world. Their mind is not, is not functioning down here. So you have the people who are creative and imagination and dreamers, but they struggle to implement. And then you've got the grinders. They implement. You've got the person who, done and done. You tell them what to do and they get it done. But you know what? They work off a checklist. Whatever's on their checklist, they do, but they can never ever think or dream off the paper. It never occurs to them to try something different than the way it was always done. In Navon v'chacham kamocha, what Yosef said is, your next Fed chairman, what you're going to need to do in your next cabinet post for the economy, is you need someone who's both chacham v'navon. You need someone with imagination and creativity, but who can also impl- implement and execute. And, Yo- and Paro says, hmm, 
Who is that person? You know who it is? You. You're the Chacham and Navon. You've got exactly, you've got just what it takes. Rav Druk also comments on the words, Navon v'chacham kamocha. Rav Druk in his Eish Tamid also uh, deals with this, and he says the following. He says, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Where are we? Lamed Gimel. Lamed. I'll tell you where you Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Just find the place. Yeah, here it is. Now, Rav Druk is assuming, you don't necessarily have to make this assumption, but he makes it, that when Yosef suggests him, you need an Ishnabon Vachacham, and he's just proven himself to be that person through his capacity to interpret the dream, Yosef was essentially applying for the position. He did so in a passive way, but he was essentially applying for the position. And Rav Druk wonders the following question. Last week's Parsha, we know that when Yosef says to the Sarah Mashkim, don't forget me, don't you forget about me, he means when you come out and you meet Paro and you have the opportunity of access and you have an audience with the emperor, don't forget about little old me and what I did for you here in prison. And Hashem says, mm, that was over-initiative. You said it to Sarah Mashkim twice, you clearly didn't trust and believe in me, and therefore you're spending two extra years in prison. So the same Yosef, who suffered two extra years because he understood the problem, the challenge of taking too much initiative, now he's applying for a position with Paro? Why didn't he let go, let God? Why is he taking the initiative? Shouldn't he have allowed Hashem to do his magic? So why is this time different? Why didn't he learn his lesson? Why isn't he punished for it? Says Drav Druk, because there's a fundamental difference. Before he makes the suggestion, you need an Ish Nabon V'chacham, what does he say? Biladai, Elohim Yanesh Paro. Yosef says, it's not me. Oh, the dream interpretation? I'm so happy that you like it. I'm so happy it resonates and it works for you. It's not me. I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm just a conduit and an agent. It's really all coming from God. So because Yosef first displayed the Amuna and Bitachon, then he was allowed to take the Hishtadlas. In the case of Sarah Mashkim, says Rav Druk, he did it in the wrong order. He had too much Hishtadlas and only then showed the Amuna, and that's why he was punished for it. Okay. Now, Vayikra Yosef. Pasuk Nun Aleph. Mem Aleph Nun Aleph. Mem Aleph Nun Aleph. Says the Pasuk, Fast forward. Yosef has been appointed the Viceroy of Egypt, the second in command. Has anyone ever heard of the opinion, the position of Viceroy since the story of Mikates? Do we have Viceroys in America or anywhere else in the world? Anyway, there's certain words that we only use when we need to translate the parasha. So Yosef rises to the position of, I guess I'm more entertained by that than you are. Yosef rises to the position of Viceroy of Egypt. He's in charge of the economy. He's saving the economy and he's going on with his life. And he marries. He's called Safnas Paneach. Asnas Bas Potifera coming only Isha. He marries Asnas, the daughter of Potifera. Who is this Potifera? I always point this out because I can't stand the irony. Potifera Rashi tells us is Potifar. Vinikra Potifera. Ashenistaris Me'ilav Lafisha Chamed is Yosef the Mishkav Zachar. Potifera became sterile, which was a punishment because Potifera actually was attracted to Yosef. He had the same gender attraction to Yosef. Um, and therefore Hashem made him uh, sterile. This is Potiphera, is Potiphar. We're calling him Potiphera. Osnas is his daughter. That means who's Osnas' mother, or at least stepmother, if it's another mother, is 
Aishas Potiphar. Who's Aishas Potiphar? The woman who relentlessly tried to seduce and falsely accuses Yosef. So you can only imagine what Thanksgiving dinner is like when Yosef is at his in-laws. Think about who's there and his mother-in-law and the false accusation and the experience that they had. But I don't really see a lot of people talking about that. But anyway, that is uh, something that comes up. So Yosef is 30 years old when he becomes the head of uh, Mitzrayim. And he, in fact, executes his plan. wasn't just a dreamer, didn't just have the imagination. He executes it. He marries and he has these two children. And the Pasuk tells us that he gives them names. The Bechor is called Menashe. Kineshan Alekim is called Amali. It's called Beis Avi. He calls the first one Menashe because Hashem caused me to forget all my toil and all my father's household. The second son is called Ephraim. Hashem made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Menashe and Ephraim are the two sons, and they are the names with which we bless our sons on Friday night. The bracha that we give that they should be like Menashe and Ephraim. What's going on here with this bracha to be like Menashe and, excuse me, and Ephraim? <clears throat> when he ascends to these great heights. So, he names his kids these things. So this first name, Menashe, Kinashan Elokim. Hashem caused me to forget all my hardship. He caused me to forget my father's household. Is Yosef at Tzadik being callous? He names his son, thank you for letting me forget everything about what came before. Is this a coping mechanism? Is this how he's adjusting? Is he hardened to his new reality? Has he become bitter? How is it possible that Yosef, who was so close, Yosef, who was the spinning image of his father, how is it possible that in his rise to greatness, he forgot about where he came from. Don't we always say, don't forget where you come from? And here's Yosef, not only forgetting where he came from, but he's naming his son. Thank you for letting me forget. There are a number of suggestions which are offered. First of all, it seems to me that if you name your kid, I have forgotten my family, it means one thing. You haven't forgotten your family and you don't want to. But furthermore, the Akedah suggests that Yosef doesn't mean to say, I've literally forgotten them. What he meant was, I have a selective memory. And what he means, what he means when he says kinashani is, I am choosing to look back on my life and only remember the highlights. Yeah, there was fighting. Yeah, there was favoritism. Yeah, there was rivalry. But I'm choosing to engage and employ a selective memory. That's how the Akedah understands. It's not that Yosef is saying, I have forgotten my father and I've forgotten everything about where I've come from. But rather, I am choosing to engage a selective memory. I'm choosing to omit and edit out the animosity, the conflict, the enmity, and so on. Rav Hirsch of Shamshon Hirsch has an altogether different approach. He says the suggestion that Yosef could forget his family is preposterous. Of course he couldn't forget. So he reinterprets what the word Nashani means, the root of the word of the name, of the name Menashe. He says here, Nashani doesn't mean cause me to forget. He says Rav Hirsch, it means what the word Noshe means when it comes to Shemitah. In the laws of Shemitah, we use the word Noshe, and in that context, a Noshe is a creditor. In other words, says Rav Hirsch, Yosef celebrates the birth of his son as he enjoys a position of great prominence in the strongest empire in the world. And then he reflects back on it and he says, wow, how did I get here? I'm the viceroy of Egypt. I live in a palace. I have wealth. And now I'm married and I have a son. He names him Kinashani Elohim. What he seemed until now to be terrible misfortune, he realizes upon reflection is exactly what brought him to that great moment. And so he says, I'm now deeply indebted to my perceived misfortune and my family who brought them on. Kinashani Elohim says, refers doesn't mean I have forgotten. Kinashani means I am indebted. I am indebted to the perceived misfortune and I'm indebted to my family who made this happen. Yosef had suffered this string of challenges and hardships 
And he hadn't only survived, but now Yossi finds himself thriving. And he could have looked back and said, forget them. I've risen above them. I've disproven them. I've moved on from them. But he doesn't say any of those things. Instead, he looks and he says, all of that is what made me who I am. All of that is what led to today. He doesn't dismiss it and doesn't get rid of it, but he looks at it and he says, it too contributes to making me the man I am, to making me the person who I am, who I am today. The Likute Alachas, Rav Nassan of Breslov, the student of Rav Nachman of Breslov, has a beautiful insight on these two names, Menashe and Ephraim. And while I have so much more I wanted to share, oi, mamish, so much more I wanted to share, I'll have to end with this. Says Rav Nassan, he says, "Alshem zen nikram bnei Yosef Menashe Ephraim, Asher holidam Yosef Mitzrayim she ervas haaretz." Where are they born, Menashe and Ephraim? They're born in Mitzrayim. They're born in this foreign, hostile land. They're born in exile. V'hu begodal tzidkaso zacha gam sham la'amod benisonu lipo b'dayto b'kom hashavar alav. Yosef never became compromised. He never assimilated. He never forgot his values. Ki kishmenasen so adam lochem imenu shleimas hadas. Yosef becomes the paradigm and the model for how to live in exile, how to live with prosperity in exile, how to not forget where we come from, how to let go of the hurt and embrace the joy, how to hold on to the values. Had Yosef not created this precedent, this Maisa of Asim Labanim, we would not know how to live in exile. And if we didn't have our role models, and we didn't have our contemporary righteous tzaddikim who paved the way, we would be lost in Golos too. We would have no idea how to find Hashem or live life. Says Rav Nosson of Breslov, and that's why he named his sons Menashe and Ephraim. Even in the far off and the distant places, one can find Hashem. Even in a pandemic, even in the pit, even in Golos Mitzrayim, even in exile, even in a moment that feels like despair, you can find Hashem. Everything is from Hashem. The ability to forget the misfortune, the ability to forget the hardship, the ability to employ a selective memory, that's also from Hashem. Even the hole in our heart, even when we feel that we're lost or distanced from Hashem, that's also from Hashem. Sometimes that distance makes the heart grow fonder and becomes the catalyst that pushes us to come closer. That too is from Hashem. Even in a foreign land, I could find the good. Menashe is sur meira, and Ephraim is ase tov. When we're in that exile and we're in that foreign land, we distance ourselves from the negative and we pursue the positive. And even in a place of hardship and struggle and challenge, one can nevertheless continue to still find Hashem. As I said, a lot more to cover, but we're out of time. Wishing everyone a freilich chanaka, lichtig Join us tomorrow morning for 10 minutes of meaning at 8.15. Living with the Moon at 8.45. We're going behind the beam tomorrow night with Lori Palatnik at 9 p.m. And again, thank you to our sponsors. Please note, next week, YouTube. If you're looking at YouTube, subscribe to that YouTube channel. It'll remind you when we go live for all of our classes. Even if you're on Zoom, go on YouTube. YouTube.com slash Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. 
youtube.com slash Rabbi Efren Goldberg. Subscribe to the channel and you'll know when we go live so you can continue to join our shiurim. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Have a wonderful day and a great Hanukkah.